Good morning, NCC family. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be with you. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be able to stand in this space and to deliver God's word, to be able to preach the word to you. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do, and I'm glad that we get to look into the scriptures together today. You know, I said it earlier, and I meant it. God is doing great things at NCC, and I believe that he is just getting started. I believe that to be true because I believe that where God's people trust and obey him by faith, God moves. He moves by the power and the work of his Holy Spirit. He does this because we serve a God who is good. Now, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I grew up in this church in Wilson, North Carolina, and uh, my pastor used to do this call and response thing, and I'm hoping that some of you know it, um, but it was this thing, and we used to say it all the time, he would say, God is good, and then our congregation would say, hey, some of you guys are with me, and then he would say, all the time, and the congregation would say, Awesome. Okay, so if this is the first time ever and you feel a little bit weird, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's good. Uh, we're going to try this together, okay? So let's, let's try this. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. Yeah, it's good. Thanks for taking me back to middle school. The problem is that sometimes it doesn't seem like God is good, does it? Like, if we're honest, if we really dig deep into how we feel about our circumstances, about things that are going on, we often feel that we should maybe preface that response. See, we hear God is good, and for some of us, we think, well, maybe God is good. Or we say, man, I sure hope God is good. For some of you, maybe it looks a little bit more like God is good. Really? Or maybe you resonate with the psalmist when he says, God, where are you? How long will it take you to come through? This is the tension of faith. We're in the middle of a series called Vintage Faith where we're examining these ideas, but these questions about the goodness of God, if we're really honest, this is where our faith moves out of a fantastical brain space and it begins to resonate in our fragile flesh and bone. This is where faith really becomes tangible for us. Because I, I believe if we are honest, all of us to some degree at some time have had doubts We've had doubts about God, about his goodness, about his plans, about his timing, his purposes. This is the nature of being created beings in the condition of the fall. Because, see, we have received redemption from Jesus, but we are still waiting for him to return. We're waiting for all things to be made new and for all things to be made right. We are waiting for what has been promised. And while we are waiting, we have to exercise this thing called faith. God, are you who you say you are, and will you do what you have promised to do? 
in Hebrews chapter 11, which is where we're going to be for a lot of today, we see mention after mention of those who have come before us by faith. Other men and women who have wrestled in this same space. They've wrestled with hoping and trusting that our God is good. And much like us, they've met struggles along the way. In fact, many in this passage uh, have, have all kinds of stuff that goes on with them. Abraham, who we're looking at today, has some pretty serious family drama. Uh, Abraham is a guy who at one point in his life, because of doubting God's power and God's providence, he lies about his wife and says that she's his sister and then allows another man to take her as his wife. But yet we find him here in Hebrews 11 as one who, by faith, God counts it to him as righteousness. At another point in Abraham's life, when he doesn't trust God's timing, he takes God's promises into his own hands. And rather than waiting and having a son with his wife, he has a son with his wife's servant, and it causes a tension and a rift in that family that, quite honestly, we still feel today in the Middle East. All because of a struggle with faith. You thought you had family problems. You're not alone. See, all of these men and women that are listed in Hebrews 11, they all messed up in one way or another. They all have doubts. They all have struggles. But yet still, they're listed here as men and women who are examples Examples to us of people who have lived by faith. And so today, we're going to dig in a little bit more to Abraham. We're going to examine his struggles. We're going to examine his faith. And see how we can learn to maybe navigate this faith journey a little bit better ourselves. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles or scroll there on your phone to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Uh, you can take that with you as a gift today if you don't own a Bible of your own. Uh, but the text will also be on the screens. And then also, if you could stick a pinky or a finger or a bookmark in Genesis 15, I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth between these spaces. And if you're just trying to flip there, it may be a little bit difficult. Uh, so Hebrews 11 and Genesis 15. Let's begin in Hebrews 11, chapter 8. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This text alone, just this illustration of God calling Abraham and Abraham exercising faith, this fact alone points to a God who is good, who is great, who is gracious, and who is glorious. Because just like Abraham that we have described, we have to ask the question, what kind of God would take a man who had messed up the ways that Abraham had messed up or was going to mess up and use him? to lead, to become a patriarch of a nation of people that God would say, these are my chosen people. And is he the guy that you would pick? 
you had to say this guy's going to be our leader, is he really the one who stands up as the top example? So what kind of a God chooses a man like that? I'll tell you what kind of God chooses a man like that. He's a God whose grace is greater than we can fathom. He is a God whose love is deeper than the oceans and whose mercy stretches farther than the galaxies. He is a God who extends love and grace and forgiveness. And this is the important part. He extends these things not based on anything that we do as broken, sinful people. He does this based on his will. He extends a love and a grace to us through Jesus, who knew no sin but became sin for us. That's the kind of God that he is. Frederick Lehman penned one of my favorite hymns called The Love of God. In this, he describes this love, this nature of God. He says it like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What beautiful words to describe the love of our God. The very ability for us to exercise faith is a gift given to us by God. The desire to trust Him is the work of the Holy Spirit drawing us toward the knowledge and the understanding of God Himself. Faith in itself is a grace of God shown to us for His glory. Abraham is obeying God based on an interaction that we find in Genesis chapters 12 and 15, these passages lay out what is called the Abrahamic covenant. And so if you would, go ahead and turn there. We're going to read in Genesis 15. I want to give you a little bit of context in this chapter. See, so God appears to Abram uh, shortly after he has gone and rescued his nephew Lot. And he turns down, Abraham, Abram turns down uh, these riches that he has offered, okay? And so God comes in, and he does a couple of things. First, he reminds him of who he is. God reminds him of his nature, and then he reminds him of his promises. Uh, so here, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then Abram responds to God in verse 2. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Can we just pause a moment? What audacity. Did Abraham miss who God, what God said in verse 1? I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. What can you give me, God? We don't ever act like that, do we? 
see Abram is frustrated. He's frustrated because he wants God to come through on his promise. And right now, things aren't shaping out the way that he thinks they should shape out. So he's whining about it, quite honestly. God, where are you? I thought you were going to come through. I thought we were doing this whole nation thing and going out. What's, what's the deal? Abraham says, I don't want more riches. I don't need that. The thing that's in my heart is that I am childless and I want a son. And you're not holding up to your end of the bargain. Do we ever talk to God like that? God, I thought you were going to do this. I thought you were going to come through this way. Look in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God reminds Abram, He's not just going to give him a son. He's going to form a nation. He's going to establish a bloodline through him that ultimately will lead to Christ. And then in verse 6, which is the verse that really Hebrews 11 that we looked at earlier is hinged upon. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And the Apostle Paul expounds a little bit more on this interaction in Romans chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you remember your first job? I know that's maybe an odd question to ask after reading that. My first job was a pretty solid job. I got a job as a personal assistant for the CEO of a tech startup company. Uh, I made $20 an hour, and uh, it was pretty great. The job description, as I was told, was that you're going to follow the CEO around and basically do whatever he tells you to do. Okay, cool, 20 bucks an hour. I could put in the hours after school, and so I'd go. I showed up for my job. My first role uh, was to carry around a toolbox uh, for him. He was going in for one of... Uh, his technical duties, and he went in. I'm carrying his toolbox around. This was followed by going and picking up his slushie at Sonic, uh, taking a lawn chair out of his convertible, and setting it at the edge of a soccer game where I was to sit in dialogue with him about the game. If all of this sounds strange to you, it's because it is. It was a weird job. Now, what I haven't told you is that the CEO of this company was actually my friend Chris. We were in high school, and Chris has always been this really brilliant young man. Uh, he's intelligent, and he started this tech company in Goldsboro, North Carolina in ninth grade, 
and it's since to go on and, and be really fruitful, and he's still doing it to this day. Uh, but about three days in, he realized, I can't afford to keep Micah on staff. <laughs> Which, again, you know, if I'm making 20 bucks an hour, I'm completely unqualified. Um, yeah, he can't afford to keep me. And so he cashed in on my wages, which at the time I'd, I'd earned about 80 bucks. He gave me $80 and then a slushie from Sonic as severance. And, um, you know, it sounds silly, but I was actually really proud of this job. Like, he had told me he was going to hire assistant, and so I put together my first resume ever and wrote it, typed it all out and handed it to him. Like, I interviewed with him, which is kind of weird because this is my friend. Uh, but I interviewed with him. I did all the work on the front end, and I was really proud of the work that I was doing. It was my first job that I'd taken the initiative to go out and get this job on my own. And I worked hard, even though it was really weird work. <laughs> I worked hard, and I received what I was due. Salvation doesn't work that way. See, if salvation worked that way, if I could work out my own salvation, if I could earn it on my own, then God would owe it to me. God is not indebted to me in any way. God doesn't owe you anything. See, God saves by no other means except by his grace. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 4. He awakens within you the realization of your sin. The Holy Spirit convicts you of this and shows you the desperate need that we have to be made right with the Father. And then the Father in his love shows us that love and that he gives his only son for us. And he pours out the wrath of, pours out his wrath on sin that sits on Jesus on our behalf. He does this out of love for us. We owe nothing. Because we didn't do the work. Jesus the hope of all hope is shown as Jesus walks out of the grave. And in doing this, he not only shows us that we can have forgiveness of sin, he shows us that we can have abundant life, trusting him in faith. See, the faith of Abraham made him faithful to God, but his faithfulness to God is not what saved him. His faith does. There is a difference. I can be faithful in my work, but my work does not save me. It is my faith in Christ and Christ alone. We sing about this here uh, when we sing the hymn, How Great Thou Art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. Why can we scarce take it in? Because it was our debt to pay. But Jesus paid it on our behalf. He did the work. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And then we all sing, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. This is our God. But if it's our faith that counts us as righteous, what is this faith? 
Pastor Brandon talked about it a little bit last week. We see it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, a definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, we read earlier that Abraham went out obeying God, but not knowing where he was going. Okay, and Abraham had the assurance of things hoped for. He was convinced of the things that he had not yet seen. He was convinced that the same God of grace and goodness that formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him would show him where to go. He trusted that God was going to direct his steps. If I can take us on a quick backwards journey through time, um, how many of you have a Maps app on your phone okay, of some kind? All right, some of you don't have phones, okay. No, yeah, so most of us, right? Like if you have a smartphone at all, there's a Maps app on the phone. And how does this work? You know, you, you type in the destination, and it tells you, well, you can go this way and avoid tolls. You can go this way and avoid dirt roads. This little section here, well, there's going to be a traffic jam here. You probably want to take this other route around. And you hit go, and what do you do? You go, right? Fairly simple, okay? This has become a very modern and normative experience, for us, okay, but let me take us a step back. How many of you remember a TomTom Tom GPS? Why are you laughing? Okay, yeah, so TomTom Tom GPS, okay. So how many of you still have a TomTom Tom GPS? No, no, put it down, put it down. No, it's okay. So the TomTom Tom GPS was this device that essentially did what the Maps app does on our phones, but you had to like really, really punch in the address, and you prayed you didn't, didn't get a number wrong, because if you had to back up, that was a whole other thing. Um, and you also had to make sure that you plugged it in every once in a while, so the maps would be updated. But the principle was still basically the same, right? You punch in a destination, and off you go. Let me take us a step backward. MapQuest, anybody? Yeah, MapQuest. So MapQuest and I became really good friends in college because I would tour with the band, and often what we would do is we'd put in the addresses of our, the different venues we were going to play at over a weekend. We'd print it all out in a binder. Yeah, somewhere in there. And, and if anyone lost the binder, they were on the van washing duty for like the rest of the month. But you would print out these directions, and you had turn-by-turn -turn directions on where to go. You put in your destination, Print out the 29 pieces of paper that take you across town, and off you go, right? And then this next one for me is one that is really, like, it has great family memories for me. Anytime that we would go out on a vacation, I have this image of my dad with the map spread out on the table and highlighters just going to town. He had this whole color-coded system of how to map out our vacation route. Have, have any, any of you done this? Anybody? Yes, you are my favorite people. The rest of you are okay, but you guys, we're in it together this morning. No, this was what we did, right? We knew our destination, and so we'd pull out the map, and we would highlight our route, making sure that we knew the way to go. Now, sometimes that, even then, got a little bit squirrely, but we eventually get there. Right? We know our destination. We know where we're going. Step backward beyond this, and we are staring at stars in the woods with a compass. Some of you may have done this. But you at least have a direction, a destination on where to go. You set your heading, and you start walking. 
Now, the thing that makes these tools work is simple. We know our destination. In order to use these things, you have to know where you're going. I plug in on my phone the address, and off I go. I put it in the TomTom, and hopefully I get there. You know, I print out MapQuest, and maybe somewhere along the way I'll end up in the right spot. Like, but you get the point. We know where we're going. And I've, I don't know about you, but I've almost come to this point now where I don't even really know the roads of my town as well as I think I should because I'm so used to plugging an address in a GPS and just go. But it says that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham trusts God so much that he doesn't know if he's going to get turn-by-turn guidance. He doesn't have the map quest folder to follow. He just trusts that when God says go, we go. And God is going to guide us and direct us along the way. And so the text tells us that Abraham enters into a foreign land. He's going into a land that's going to be his inheritance. And we're thinking, okay, this is good. But then this next part is interesting. It says that he lives in tents. Tents aren't very permanent, are they? They're not very stable. See, Abraham is actually in a land that is going to become his, but he doesn't know that yet. And so instead of giving Abraham the stability of an instant destination, for some reason, God allows him to live in a foreign land in a tent. Read it again, verses 9 and 10 in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And I believe that sometimes God places you in the tent because he wants to grow your faith. Sometimes God moves you around because he doesn't want you to get too comfortable. But we struggle with the tent, don't we? Because we all like security. We all like safety. We like stability. And you may even be in a spot this morning where you are trusting and believing by faith in God that he has promised something to you. He has called you into something. That he is designing a city for you. He is building the foundations. And you've been praying and trusting that God is going to come through. And you've been patient and you've been waiting. But here's the problem. Some of you have been stuck in the campground wishing that you were homeward bound and you are missing the holy ground. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. Some of you have been stuck in the tent life. You have been in the campground and you're wishing you were home. You're wishing you had the AC, you're wishing you had the stability, that everything was good that things were secure, you're wishing that you were homeward bound. And because you were so focused there, you are missing the things that God is saying to you right where you are. You're missing the holy ground. For some of you, you've been transient for so long. You've been looking for something solid. You've been praying for that job. You've been praying for that relationship, for that son or daughter 
You've been praying for the healing, the hope from depression, that you've been so focused on the external result of a promised land that would bring you financial relief or a community or a night where you didn't wake up sweating from a nightmare thinking about your little girl or a night where you slept at all. You've been thinking about a day where you don't have to take pills anymore or wonder if the chemo is working. A day when you can just feel good about life and not feel like the bottom has dropped out. You've been so focused on the security that being home would bring. The safety that home would bring. The stability that it would bring. That maybe, and this isn't true for everyone, but maybe. Maybe you've missed the fact that being homeward bound... The best part of being in the promised land is not the land itself. The best part about being in the promised land is the one who made the promise. It's the promise maker. We sing it here, promise maker, promise keeper. You finish what you begin. But we quickly forget that even when we are in the middle of the campground, that our God is with us. know where you are this morning but maybe you just need to hear that God has not left you you are not alone he is with you and he is trustworthy and he is good the same God who formed the ground beneath our feet the same God who breathes life into dry bones who takes a heart of stone and transforms it into a heart of flesh. He is with you. And he may be using the tent life to teach you to rely on him a little more. Because the honest reality is that oftentimes once we have received his promise, once everything is going well, we tend to cling to the promise and forget the God of the promise. And it's easy, it's easy when everything is going wrong to cry out to God, isn't it? You see it all throughout scriptures, this is not a new thing. Anytime something is wrong, the people cry out to God. God, deliver us, redeem us, bring restoration. We're quick to look forward to the promise. But oftentimes, once we're in the promised land, once it's all good, once the thing that has had us losing sleep is here, and the sheep that have kept us up all night just hopping over fences are out of a job, once everything is good, we forget. Our prayer life goes down. We don't seek God the way that we had been. We begin to separate from community. And I wonder, church, and I... This is, again, I wonder, I don't believe this is true, okay? I don't believe this is true. But I wonder if there was not a promise of eternity, if all there was was this life, and all we had was our time here to worship God as he is, because he is worthy, because he is it, and then we were gone, and we didn't really gain anything out of it but the ability to worship him, we didn't have the promise of eternity, would we still worship God because of who he is? 
I believe we do have a promise of eternity. I think our danger is that sometimes we worship God because of what we can gain out of the transaction and not just because of who he is. Heaven is a byproduct, not the end goal. The end goal is the glory of God and God alone. The fact that our God allows us to come before him and to worship him at all is in itself grace. That a holy, almighty, infinite God would make a way for depraved, weak, finite human beings to come before him is a wonder all on its own and then throw into that mix that this same almighty God loves us, cares deeply for us, guides us and directs us, forgives us of sin and imputes his righteousness on us. Church, this should have us in tears and broken at the unbelievable grace of our God. Top it all off, he doesn't stop there. He blesses his children according to his purposes both now and for all eternity. Faith is the assurance, the substance of things that are hoped for. The conviction or the evidence of things not yet seen. When we live by faith, resting in the work and the will of God over us, it is a freeing thing. It's a remarkable thing, and it takes remarkable faith. And if we're doing this right, it's going to feel tense sometimes normal. The tension of between now and eternity. But never forget that our God is good. All the time. That he is with you. I'd like to close today with the words of Charles Spurgeon on what a life looks like that exemplifies this kind of remarkable faith and as we do I want us to listen to this almost in a spirit of prayer so if you would would you bow your heads the band's going to come and lead us in a song in a moment but I want you to hear these words from Charles Spurgeon as he describes what a life looks like that lives out this remarkable faith and as you hear these things would you pray that God would stir this in you that he would give you this kind of a faith and a confidence in him. That man who believes in Christ and can say, salvation is finished. All is of Christ and all is free. My faith is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. That man is freed from fears. He is not afraid to die. Christ has finished the work for him. He is not afraid to live. He shall not perish, for his soul is in Jesus Christ. And he is not afraid of trial or of trouble. For he that bought him with his blood shall keep him with his arm. He is free from present fears, and he is free from present cares too. He has no need to toil and labor, to fret and strive, to do this or to do that. His life is happy and his service is light. The yoke that he wears, he scarce knows to be a yoke. 
The road is, pre is pleasant and the path is peace. No climbing upwards except as angel hands assist him to climb the road which, no, which else no mortal feet could traverse. He is free. Free from all fatal delusion. He is not a deceived man. He shall never open his eyes to find himself mistaken. He has something which shall last him. Long as life shall last. Which shall be with him when he wakes from his bed of day. To conduct him joyously to realms of light and endless day. This man is such a man that if I compared him with the very angels, I should not do amiss. He is on earth, but his heart is in heaven. He is here below, but yet he sits together with Christ in heavenly places. He has his troubles, but they work his lasting good. He has his trials, but they are only the precursors of victory. He has weakness, but he glories in infirmity because the power of Christ rests upon him. He is sometimes cast down, but he is not destroyed. He is perplexed. He is not in despair. He does not grovel, but he walks upright. His foot may be in the mire, but his eye is above the stars. His body may be covered with rags, but his soul is robed in light. He may go to a miserable pallet to find an unresting rest, but his soul sleeps in the bosom of his beloved, and he has perfect peace which passeth all understanding, which keeps his heart and mind through Jesus Christ. O oh God, I cast my care on thee. I triumph and adore. Henceforth, my chief concern shall be to love and serve thee more. God, may this be true of us. Would you stir in us a faith that we cannot stir within ourselves? God, let us trust you. When we lose sight, would you remind us of who you are? Would you help us to not believe lies, but to remember and to be anchored in the truth that you are God, that you are good, and you will do everything you have promised. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. And as we sing this song, I ask that we would sing this again, remembering who our God is and who he says that we are. I ask that you would sing it as an anthem of your faith. And if you feel like you can't sing it that way, I ask that you would pray it. And say, God, would you please help me to live in this type of a remarkable faith?